Good morning, good morning. Uh, if you could go and open up your Bibles, we're in John chapter 6 today. We started John chapter 6 verse 1 last week and uh, today we're going to pick up on verse 16. But just to kind of catch us up, we are going through the book of John. If you're a visitor, you're our first time here, we're just kind of making our way through the book of John verse by verse. Uh, last week, again, was verse 1 through verses 15. And uh, there we see the, if you have the little subtitles in your Bible above chapter 6, perhaps it says Jesus feeds the 5,000. And as that is where we were at. Uh, last week, we noted that from chapter 5 to chapter 6, there's quite a time interval as John records uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a time break. And uh, chapter 5 goes from Jesus being pretty, the following being pretty small, till chapter 6 we open up, and there is a huge, tremendous following of people. Thousands of people are following him. It is the Passover time. As we noted, uh, the Passover was the primary feast of the Jews. It was required by the law of God. That they all the Jews, no matter where they were, had to come back on that day. At least the male household of uh, the male representative of every household. So there was a huge uptick around Jerusalem of pilgrims from all over. Uh, all the Israelites are coming back. Uh, the Passover before this, only three are recorded by John. The Passover before this is when Jesus cleansed the temple, and he also performed many signs that day as well. Jesus did not give himself to them because he knew their heart and he left them that previous Passover. Now, most likely, people have come back. These pilgrims have come back. They're looking for the one that was doing the signs. And as we've covered many times, we'll continue as we go through the book of John. Signs are not normal. They are God authenticating uh, his messenger and validating his, his message that the messenger is bringing forth. So these signs, the signs were not being performed left and right by everyone. Jesus comes on the scene. This is pointing to the fact that God is validating him, authenticating him. This is God's messenger, God's message that is going forth. All right. So the crowd has been increased uh, between chapter one, uh, verse one and verse fifteen. There, over five thousand men are gathered, which that does not mean biblically the way they would count is that 5,000 only men were there, but that is usually kind of a household count. So most likely there were 20,000 that were actually there. Uh, Jesus has taken them to a very desolate area. This is not by accident. God, uh, God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He is all-powerful, and Jesus is because Jesus is God. He takes them to this desolate area on purpose. They get out there. And they are all extremely hungry now. Uh, what are they going to do, right? So Jesus ends up, one of the disciples comes and brings him the two little sardines, uh, the five little loaves of bread, which if you recall, we would say they're about the size of a Twinkie. For those of you that remember what Twinkies are, all right, about that size of a little loaf of bread and two basically dried fish that would be kind of like sardinish. And so you know, here, this is what we have to feed all 20,000. And Jesus takes it, right, and multiplies it, feeds them all. They eat so much that they're totally content, uh, satisfied, satiated, so much that there's 12 baskets of leftovers. So this is a tremendous miracle, a tremendous sign that John records and all three of the other gospel writers record also. Uh, it is tremendous. All right, so that's kind of where we left off. He performs this massive, huge miracle that we did the calculations, and if it was like, 
if there were 20,000 people there, you know, if each person ate five of the little sardines, that's now 100,000 uh, fish that would have to be there, right? The same with the loaves of bread. If each ate five loaves and there's 20,000, it's over, uh, it's 100,000 loaves of bread now, plus the leftovers. So the, the numbers are, are huge. Uh, what do they want to do with him because he's done this for them? They immediately say, you are the prophet. And we noted that that's taken from Deuteronomy 18, where God spoke to Moses to prophesy about the prophet that is to come, that you must listen to him or you will die. So Moses, the primary prophet, they recalled and looked back upon. Uh, the Pharisees considered themselves disciples of Moses. Uh, Moses prophesied about the prophet to come. These people had just been fed. says, you're it, Jesus. You are the prophet that is to come. And we want to make you king as well. So this is huge. It's Passover time. This is when they celebrated the great exodus out of Egypt thousands of years ago. Uh, they were set free by God, right? Is this the new Moses that's going to set them free from Roman occupation? They want to take him to Jerusalem, put him on the throne, declare him king. They have free food. He's extremely powerful, right? They're putting some of these things together. This is it. What does Jesus do? He says no, and he abandons. He goes back. He, he pulls himself away from this crowd who is wanting him to take this role. So let's continue on. John is slowly revealing the people's thoughts and revealing who they are, and uh, we'll get further into this. Chapter 6 is quite long, and it's, a pro it's just progressively exposing these people's hearts as we get going. All right, so look at verse 16. Let's pick up there, and we'll go through quite a chunk today. We're going to pick up through verse 36. We might have to retrace some of our steps next week as we uh, pick up and continue, but let's try this. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at, land, at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great time together, together to reflect on your word, together as a group of believers, Lord, with you in common. And we thank you, Lord, of the rich salvation that you have provided for us through Jesus Christ who is the bread of life that you have given for us to feed on, who is the fountain of life for us to drink upon, that we may be fully satisfied, Lord, uh, in that we have had the eternal bread, the bread of life. We have drunk from the fountain of life and that we have eternal life now. Help us not to forget this as we live through the in this temporary life. Help us, of course, not to be like these people, Lord, who are... Uh, just wanting their bellies to be full and coming to you for the wrong reasons and not the reasons that they needed to. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus and what he has truly done to provide for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if we go back to verse 16, let's look at that, verses 16 and 17. Uh, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. All right, so where was Jesus? We see some separation here. Uh, the disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, going across the Sea of Capernaum. It was dark. Jesus was not there. John does not elaborate on this, but if we turn over to Mark chapter 6, verse 45 to 46, we see where Jesus was. Uh, he got away from the crowd and even his disciples to go and pray. So this is what we find over here in Mark. And we will do some going back and forth since this is covered by Matthew and Mark. They just give a few different details that John does not. But in Mark 6, 45 through 46, very plainly we see the separation. Jesus sends them to the lake. They get in the boats. They go away. Jesus has pulled himself away from the crowd that is chanting and wanting him to be king. He has also pulled him away, himself away from the disciples. And here in Mark, look at verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So this is where he was. He had just fed the thousands of people. He had spent a lot of time with his disciples. A lot had been going on between, between chapter 5 and John and chapter 6. John the Baptist had been decapitated uh, for the faith. Uh, he'd been with the crowds a lot, doing signs on the sick, uh, John 6, 1 and 2 says. And now he's seeking private time in prayer. And one of the things that we're going to take note of as we uh, carry through this uh, passage today is that Jesus practiced and taught private prayer. Now, we do know that he prayed publicly sometimes. Uh, it was just referenced there that he thanked God for the food, right? But he practiced and he taught private prayer. And Jesus would intentionally remove himself from crowds, distractions, and even his disciples, his closest followers, to be alone with God. If we look at Luke 5, 15 through 16, I believe this one's up here today. 
But look what he look what Luke says. He says, and this isn't the exact scenario, but it, but it, but the scene or whatever. But it is, it is uh, very pertinent uh, to this point. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Look at verse sixteen. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So what should we learn about the prayer life of Jesus? There's definitely something to be learned here, all right? If the Son of God incarnate needed to remove himself from distractions and other people, then we should certainly do the same. Uh, it is, we live in an extremely distraction-prone world, right? And so even when the disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? How should we pray? Teach us how to pray. What does he say? He says, go into your closet, right? And not that you have to literally go into a closet, but the point of it is, is that isolation, get away from all of the distractions. And if you go away to get away from all the distractions today and bring your phone, you failed, <laughs> all right? So get away where there's no distractions, nothing around where you can focus on God and pray to God. If Jesus did this, then listen, we need to do the same. There's nothing wrong with praying with your family. There's nothing wrong with praying over a meal. All those things are good. There's nothing wrong with praying publicly. All these things can be good. Uh, Pharisees got in trouble for praying publicly because they did it for their own outward bonus points, right? They wanted people to see how good of a prayer they are and how holy they were, and they would announce to God how holy they are, and they were hypocrites. But it wasn't like out, uh, public prayer was bad. Uh, Jesus partook of that too. But here we see over and over as we study the life of Jesus, he would get away to a desolate place and spend time just talking with God. We should do the same as well. Whether it's morning, whether it's night, uh, whatever time you have, do this. Practice this, all right? Uh, move on to verse 18. So Jesus has sent his disciples across the lake. They're in the boat. Jesus is not there with them. He's gone up to the mountain to pray. Verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. All right, so here we have uh, Jesus taking them around the sea to a desolate place. He sent the disciples across. He is separated on the mountain praying. Uh, he has dismissed the people trying to get away from them. The disciples are going out three to four miles out. They're on the Sea of Galilee, which is known for quick, violent, turbulent storms. Uh, the geography there is 3,000 feet mountain ranges kind of all around it. And so the storms could come up and drop in really quickly, really fast. Uh, they didn't have uh, smartphones to check the weather out to see how, what it's going to look like before they cross the lake, right? So the storm quickly comes upon them, drops down, and it is very turbulent. Uh, they had started across, they're three to four miles out. It's about a 13-mile trip, and they uh, don't have big engines on their boats, right? They are rowing, which is going to be exhausting. They're working their way across. Look over at Mark 6, Mark 6, 47 through 48. Always hold your spot there at John 6. But just to kind of glean off of what, uh, what Mark is saying. And again, they each record a few different little details that we'll kind of draw from today. Mark six forty seven through 48 says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. He was alone on the land. Speaking of Jesus and the disciples. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. All right? And not, not, not a huge bit of information there, 
But we see they're obviously separated still. The disciples are trying to get across the lake. It's around 13 miles or three to four miles out. The storm is upon them. They're making headway painfully, just barely moving. They have a long way left. And then what happens? Jesus comes up beside them. We go back to John 6. Jesus comes up beside them. And what is the reaction of the disciples when they see Jesus beside them? Uh, it's pure terror. They are frightened, and it's, it's a huge fright, frightening, all right? It's mega scared. It's, it's, it's very, uh, they're horrified to see someone walking on the water. Why are they terrified to see Jesus out there? Because walking on water was as rare then as it is now, all right? People just don't do that. They weren't doing it then. It wasn't like people just crossed the 13-mile Sea of Galilee randomly by walking across it. Everyone used boats just like they would use now. Uh, so it was as unheard of then as it is now. They're struggling. The storm is upon them. And lo and behold, there's someone walking on top of the water here right beside them. Uh, and they know who Jesus is. And, and John is, even though John starts off with a bang there in chapter 1, stating emphatically who Jesus is, that he is God, right, incarnate in the flesh, he also reveals the, the slow progression and growth of the disciples uh, in, in their belief of him. And so this is slowly building, slowly growing. And so they know that Jesus can, at this point, hey, he turned water into wine. They're obviously supernatural, and we, we went over that, that this, pointing to the fact that Jesus is the bridegroom. Uh, Jesus has, has healed, healed multiple people at this point. He's, he's made the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He's made the lame to walk. He's cast out demons. No one's ever done these things before. And so more and more signs are building, and yet none of them ever thought that he could defy the laws of gravity. I mean, he just fed all these people. I mean, all this is like, okay, but then when he defies the law of gravity and comes up beside them, this is a whole nother different revelation that they weren't ready for and they are terrified. Look at verse 20 in John chapter 6. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. That is because they were afraid. All right? He says, It is I, do not be afraid. And this verse 20 is one of, uh, it's a more of a milder I am statement. There's not the direct object like I am the bread of life, which is in verse 36 or I am, where there's something immediately following that. But it is an I am statement. And we'll cover this a lot as we go through the book of John, because he keeps doing this. He keeps recording this for us. Uh, Jesus comes up to them and says, it is I. In the, in the Greek, not that we get into the Greek a whole lot on Sunday mornings, but it would be very blunt. It would be more blunt, more clear as far as this. Jesus would say, I am, do not fear. Is what it would be. I am, do not fear. And so he is, what, he's, what is he doing? He's not just saying, don't worry guys, it's just me. But there's also something more there. And it's drawing from that Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. That will come up many, many times as we go through the book of John. Where in that passage in Exodus, uh, Moses sees the burning bush. Moses wants to go back and tell, is supposed to go back and tell Israel what God has told him. He says, how are they going to believe me? And he says, I'm going to give you three signs, right? And then he says, who am I going to say is sending me? And God says, you tell them, I am, has 
sent you. I am. This is his name. So if you, John 3, uh, Exodus 3, 13 to 14, uh, verse 14 says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when Jesus comes up beside them on the boat and says, I am, do not fear. It is more than just saying, look, guys, it's me. It's okay. It's a declaration of his deity. I am, do not fear. It is God with you. And if you go back to earlier in John, that's exactly what he's saying, right? God in the flesh, verse 14, God with us. They're fearful. The storm is upon them. God walks up and says, I am, do not fear. Uh, did the disciples realize that Jesus was truly God? We see something really interesting here. Look over at Matthew 14. Matthew 14, verse 32 through 33. And again, John doesn't record this, this part for us. John records this, this sign for us for, for somewhat different reasons than, some of, than Matthew does. But Matthew points this fact out. In verse 32 through 33, after Jesus says, I am, do not fear declaring that he is God, uh, what do the disciples do? Look at verse 32 of Matthew 14. And when they got into the boat, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. That they at this point is Peter and Jesus, because uh, Peter tried to walk on the water too. Uh, so when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the son of God. So this was a shocking moment for them. The, 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 the deity of Christ, his godness was so apparent that they immediately worshipped him as God. He is walking on the water. He gets into the boat and the storm vanishes immediately. It is clear. The sign is so huge. He's defying gravity. He's controlling the, the, everything that's involved in creating a storm. He's controlling the sea itself. It's like so stunningly, shockingly obvious, they immediately worshipped him as God, which is the right response. They saw him as for who he truly was. Now, go back to John. Look at verse 21. John 6, verse 21. So John just says, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. All right, so, so in this, this sign, this miraculous work of Jesus, there's actually four supernatural signs or miracles that are recorded here. Uh, Jesus walking on water, which usually that one stands out. Everyone's like, yes, that's not what this is known as. If you have little subheadings above that the section of scripture at verse 16, it may say Jesus walks on water. So that one stands out. Uh, but also, there, there's several others. You have Peter, who's walking on the water, right, and then begins to sink. Jesus rescues him. Uh, but there, that's obviously supernatural. Uh, number three, you have the storm that immediately ceases, immediately stops. And again, this is not accident. It's so dramatic, so drastic, that the disciples are shocked. And number four, uh, John records it here, and the other ones do too, that somehow the boat traversed the sea immediately and was on shore. They were three to four miles out, John records, but then Jesus gets in the boat, and they were immediately on shore. So there's, there's again, supernatural, all right? It reminds, it's kind of like, perhaps, 
uh, where Philip witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then God moved him right uh, in a supernatural way. So there are basically four miracles happening at this time. Now, look at verse 22, John chapter 6. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. We'll pause there. All right. So Jesus is on the mountain. Disciples have been sent across. The crowd, many of them are still there. What are they going to do? They want to find Jesus. So they go, they get word that he's over there, most likely the, big, the biggest city around. They want to go to Capernaum. Now, they're seeking Jesus, it says. Uh, John records that they are seeking Jesus. If you look at verse 24, is it a good thing that people were seeking Jesus? And it might be, kind of, maybe, sort of, yes, no, maybe so type deal, but, at, but John reveals that not all who seek Jesus uh, do so for the right reasons. And that's what Jesus is about to expose, that the greatest fans of Jesus who are willing to go all the way out to this desolate place to be with him, who are willing to chase him all the way across the Sea of Capernaum, 13 miles, get in these boats and come to see him, are they true fans of Jesus? There's some kind of belief and that's what we find a lot in the book of John. There's some kind of belief, but is this true belief? Is this saving belief that these people have in him? So look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And here again, we see this double use of the word truly. And not that Jesus speaks more truly than other times. Everything he says is absolute truth. But he says this to double down on the point that he is about to make, letting them know, getting their attention. I'm speaking this absolutely clearly. This is absolutely true. Focus in on what I'm about to tell you. This is extremely truthful that you've come to me for the wrong reasons. Look at that verse 25 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, 26, sorry. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now think about these people on the outside, us looking at that, like, wow, they're going out there to this desolate place, following him from all over the place. They're getting in boats, probably paying people to take them to Capernaum to find Jesus again. They have called him at this point uh, the prophet. I mean, the prophet, the one that Moses prophesied would come. They've declared that they want to make him king. And if you look at verse 25, what else do they call him? They call him rabbi, which means teacher, right? So they've called him rabbi. They want to make him king. They've called him the prophet. So on the outside looking in, these are these thousands of people. These are wonderful followers, very committed to Jesus Christ. But what does Jesus say? He says, no, you've come for the wrong reasons. You've come because your bellies are growling. 
You've come because 12 hours later I fed you supernaturally and you're hungry again and you want more food. They're not in a desolate area now. They're in Capernaum. It is a very big city, a metropolis. There's plenty of food around, plenty of restaurants, plenty of stores, whatever, for them to go access food. But what do they want? They want the handout. They want the free food, the supernatural food. Why would we go spend money when Jesus can just make us food, right? Uh, it's, it's like, oh, we're back, we're hungry again. Let's just follow Jesus around. We're totally taken care of now. He'll just produce food wherever we are at. Someone get him something really delicious this time so he can multiply it, right? Get him steak, get him potatoes. Let's just change it up a little bit. He'll multiply it again, and we'll just keep this going. Uh, the next day, we can have eggs, whatever. Just give him a couple of them. Boom, and it's multiplied. Thousands, right? So they're continuing to follow him. Why? They wanted Jesus, the free food provider. This is what they wanted. And in the end, they wanted a Jesus of their own making, a Jesus that would obey them. And to some degree, this is, this is a form of idolatry, is a kind of reverse idolatry. Uh, even though they called Jesus the prophet, wanted him to be king, called him rabbi, they're still committing this different form of idolatry. How, instead of carving an object, like, like they would often do in the Old Testament, or New Testament as well, into a God of their own making, they were carving God into a person of their own making. So instead of creating a, a wooden object, as the, the psalmist uh, records in Isaiah as well, where they'd make the wooden object right and go pray to it, worship, bow down, and serve this wooden object and call it God, here they have God in front of him, but they're not worshiping him for who he truly is like the disciples just did. He got in the boat, wind ceased, they saw him as God, they worshiped him as God. Here, they're, they're dismantling who he is and trying to make uh, Jesus into who they want him to be. And I've put here, it's not enough to seek Jesus or believe in Jesus if the Jesus you seek or believe in is one of your own making. And this is obviously a problem with cults, right? Uh, Mormonism creates the, or their own Jesus. Uh, they, they recognize the name, say the name, spell it just like you and I, but they redefine who Jesus is. He's not God. And so that's, that's wrong. They've created a different Jesus. This is a form of idolatry. Same with Jehovah Witnesses, right? They say Jesus is a created being, that he's not God. But also, you could say in modern-day uh, evangelical churches, you often have something very similar happen. Uh, people have come to Jesus for the wrong reasons, not for salvation, not to forgive them of sin. And they've come to Jesus to make their life better, to make their marriage better, to, make, to get more money, to get healthier, to get wealthier, etc., etc., but they haven't come for true salvation. So you don't have to be in a cult to redefine who Jesus is. These people were not in a cult. They just saw this one aspect of Jesus. They wanted more food. That's what they wanted. And Jesus says, you've come to me for the wrong reasons, all the wrong reasons. Uh, look at verse 27 there in John chapter 6. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now, Jesus is not telling the people to not work to buy food. Jesus is not anti-working. 
uh, to produce for you and your family, all right? But he is contrasting two completely opposite realities. Uh, they seek for earthly gain, and they're coming to him for just what he can do for them right here, right now. And they want Jesus for food. They wanted him for political prestige, political power. They wanted him to be the king. They wanted him for more food. They want here, now, power. They want rule. They want reign. They want free food. They want all these things right here and now are on this earth. And Jesus is saying, hey, you want temporary gain. I have come to give you eternal gain. So look what I can give you is this eternal gain, right? Uh, what does he mean that here in this verse 27, that God has set his seal on Jesus? Pretty interesting. Let's read verse 27 again. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Look at this. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Uh, this is historically, a seal was used by an author authoritative person, an authority, who had a signet ring. They could put wax upon a letter, stamp their insignia ring upon it, and it was not to be opened until it was delivered safely. And if the seal was broken, right, something had gone wrong. But it was, it was power. It meant punishable by death, usually, if this thing happened to be broken open. So it was sealed. It was stamped. It was approved of by the one in authority. Jesus is saying here, look, I am the bread. I am the one who provides eternal life. This food that I am giving you is for eternal life. And the God, the Father, has set his seal, fully approved of me. So you have Jesus, if you think about it, who is the word of God, who has been, whose God has set his seal upon him. And now Jesus is giving them the word. He is giving them the letter, which is himself. Uh, and it's also interesting, as I was reading this, obviously to think about, did you know that God has sealed you? If you are a believer, turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 through 14, an extremely comforting passage. Paul uses the same vernacular to describe you and I and what God has done for us. God the Father has obviously sealed Jesus. He has sent him and approved of him. He has validated and authenticated him by signs, by miracles and wonders. This is my son, Jesus said, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But there's also, in a similar way, a sealing that happens by God upon believers, like you and I. Look at verse 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the whole promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So in a very similar way, as God has sealed Jesus, put his, set his seal upon him and sent him, right? In a very similar way, we as believers have been sealed as well. And look, look how he traces this out. But what God has started, he will bring it all the way to completion. You have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14 now, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Who is it that guarantees your inheritance? Who is it that guarantees your eternal life? Who is it that is sealing you? It is God the Holy Spirit that each and every believer has been sealed by God. 
And truly, as God the Father has sent and sealed the Son, the same work of God has been done upon every believer in the, in the way that it is sure. It is absolute. There is no way for a person who has been sealed by God to become unsealed by God. Why? Because God is the guarantor. Who is more powerful than that guarantor? There is no one. You have God the Holy Spirit who has sealed us for our inheritance to come. That is beautiful. That is amazing grace. It is a wonderful truth that every believer needs to get deep down into their soul the assurance of their salvation through Jesus Christ. That you have been regenerated, you have been born again, and you will pre be preserved to the end by the same Holy Spirit. The same one who regenerates you, brings you to spiritual life, we studied a lot over there in John chapter 3 about, is the same one who seals, that is, preserves your spiritual life. So beautiful, right? Uh, we have been Jesus has been sealed, approved of, stamped on by God, sent, and also we, God has approved of us, sealed us, and we have safe arrival. We can look forward to our inheritance because it is assured, it is promised, guaranteed by God. Uh, go back to John chapter 6. Look at verse 28. John 6 verse 28. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now remember, Jesus has just told them they've come to him for the wrong reasons. They've come because they're, they're hungry. They want more food. Jesus says, I, I, what I have to give you is worth eternal worth. I give eternal life. And what do they say? They take it back to themselves. Uh, what must we do? And this may seem at first uh, be, to be an expression of humility, right? What can we do to be doing the works of God? But it's not. It is self-righteousness. And it comes from a place of pride. It comes from a place of arrogance when instead of seeing their sin before God, instead of seeing their total inability, their complete helplessness, their depravity before God to even do anything to earn forgiveness of one single sin, they say, what can I do to fix my own self? You tell us, Jesus, uh, what we can do, what I can do to fix myself up so that I can gain eternal life. And the root of this is not humility. The root of self-righteousness is Pride, it is arrogance. So, instead of seeing Jesus uh, as who he is, instead of seeing their inability to achieve eternal life, they ask for the to-do list. Uh, how much good, good does a person need to accomplish to inherit the, the eternal life? How much good do you need to do? How much good do these people need to do? And if you think about it truly, if you think you can do something in and of yourself, to earn eternal life, then you really don't have eternal life. And these people are looking for the to-do list. Give us it. Give us the list. Tell us what to do. We're going to go do this. We're going to accomplish these things. And then we're going to come back and have eternal life. And in their view, they're going to work for eternal life. It's a works-based salvation. This is, not, this is the opposite of grace-based. This is the opposite of mercy-based. This is the opposite of looking to Jesus who, who can only do 
what he can do, live a perfect sinless life, die on the cross so that we get his record of perfection. He takes our sin, dies for our sin, pays for our sin. Instead of looking at Jesus like that, they just say, hey, we, we can do this. We have to be righteous? No problem. No, we can go do that. That's easy. We can, we can accomplish these things, right? Look at verse 29. I'm sorry, look at, verse, look at Titus 3, 4 through 7. Titus 3, verse 4 through 7, before we get there. Titus 3, verse 4 through 7 is just excellent. <clears throat> we go to Ephesians a lot, but this, this Titus 3, verse 4 through 7 is very similar, making a very similar point on the mercy and grace that is needed and how we are not saved by works. Look what he says in verse 4. Small book, Titus, I'll let you find, take your time to find your spot there. If you haven't highlighted this or marked it up in your Bible, you might choose to. It's just a great place to go back to, especially if you're struggling uh, with insecurity of salvation or, uh, or talking to someone who's trying to do the to-do list in order to get to heaven. Uh, it's a great place to go to. Verse 4. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works. This is extremely important. Why did he save us? Not because of works. And these people of John, that John is recording, coming over to see Jesus, they want to be saved by works. They don't want grace. They don't want mercy. They want the to-do list, what they can do to save themselves. He goes on. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here we have a very clear writing of Paul that says, we are not saved by works. And that's what John is covering over here in John 6. They've come to Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not here to fill your bellies again. I'm here to give you eternal life. And instead of saying, looking to him for who he is, they say, what can we do? We want to go do some works of righteousness. All right? So here Paul is saying, no, no, no. You are saved by grace, not by works. You are saved by mercy, not by what you can do to earn your salvation. There is nothing we can do in and of ourselves. You cannot get one step closer to God. Romans 3 says no one seeks after God. No, not one, right? It's not that we're, we're all just seeking after God because we're pursuing righteousness. We are all naturally pursuing works-based salvation and pursuing that, ver that method to get ourselves to heaven, which is not going to work. We had to be perfect. We have to be truly righteous. We can't accomplish that. Who can't? It's Jesus Christ. All right? Uh, so uh, does it, uh, let's go back to verse 29. Sorry. Let's go on back over to John 6, verse 29. So they want to work their way to heaven instead of relying on Jesus to get them there. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So there is nothing that Jesus wants them to accomplish in and of themselves. There is not a to-do list. What are they to do? They are to believe in the one that God has sent. They know who this is. Jesus has told them who this is. He's just told them God has set his seal upon him. Jesus is the one that has sent, that God has sent. Um, now, it would seem like the belief in Christ 
is surely a lot easier on a person than having some huge to-do list of righteous deeds that they have to do in order to be saved. So surely the people will realize that Jesus' plan of believing in me is far easier than the big to-do list. Is that going to be the case? No, because self-righteous people hate free grace. Self-righteous people hate free grace. They'd rather achieve a to-do list or try to achieve their to-do list, pat themselves on the back and boast about what they have done than to see that they can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus said, hey, what are the works about? Believe in me. They still want to do the to-do list, right? It's not out of humility. It's pride. It's arrogant. It's self-righteousness. Instead of saying, I am a dirty, rotten sinner who needs to be saved. I can do nothing to save myself. I need a savior. That's not where they're at. They're looking to themselves for salvation. Move on to verse 30 there. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Now, this is preposterous. This is ridiculous at this point. They had just been fed. Jesus had multiplied the two fish, the five loaves to feed around 100,000 people or more. Everyone's been fed. They had just gotten there and were following Jesus. Uh, John 6, 1 and 2 records because of all the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. So the lame were being made to walk, the deaf right, were being supernaturally made to hear, the deaf, uh, deaf were made to hear, blind were made to open their eyes and see, demons that were coming, sign after sign after sign after sign had been performed, the largest miracle had been just been performed, and they, they're not seeing this as God validating him, authenticating him, this is my person, listen to him, they're not doing what they're supposed to do if they recognize this to be the prophet. Just earlier, remember, Jesus fed them. They're all full. Oh, Jesus, you are the prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, you must listen to him when he comes or you will die. Jesus has just taught them, look to me. Believe in me. Instead of listening, what do they say? We want more signs, especially in the form of food <laughs> right now we're hungry again it's been 12 hours we just got back over here we want another sign and they're manipulating him they're trying to use jesus to get what they want out of jesus same thing people try to do today oftentimes all right they're trying to manipulate him look at verse 31 you see this manipulation happening our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, again, Jesus being the prophet that was to come, does Jesus being the fulfillment of the prophet that Moses prophesied about mean that he will do more of what Moses did? And it's, it's yes and no. They wanted Jesus now, if he is the prophet, to do what Moses did, but even greater, right? So if Moses uh, produced bread for 40 years... Man, what is the new prophet going to do? He may produce even better bread. He may produce the, the, all that we can eat, fish and bread every day. It might go on for ever now, where we just have nonstop food supplied uh, by this Jesus, right? But this is not the case. Uh, there is a, uh, the, 
the, the prophet, Moses, prophesied about the prophet that is to come, and we see in Moses a type, but we see that Jesus is that ultimate fulfillment, and that types do not go straight across. So it's not that Moses provided 40 years of bread. Now Jesus is going to provide a little more than that. He's going to provide 80 years of bread, or he's going to provide 100 years of bread. It's not like that. Types always go up and, and increase spiritually. So that Jesus is not going to provide 40 years of food. He's going to provide eternal life, right? You see similar things happening as we've covered before, like on the Sabbath. That's uh, not coming straight across as just a change in a day. It's going up. Jesus is the spiritual Sabbath. In him we rest. We no longer work at all for our salvation. We rest in God's provision for salvation. He is our Sabbath, right? Uh, similarly, other things can be taken in the Old Testament. Circumcision in the Old Testament does not come across exactly over here. Now it's, now it's baptism is the difference, the only difference. No, circumcision goes up. It's regeneration. We have a circumcised heart now because of the work of God, the Holy Spirit, upon us. So when they say we're, they're trying to manipulate him to be like Moses, they're missing the point. They just want this to come across even Stephen. And he says, no. I am here to provide the eternal life. I am the bread of life, all right? So it's much higher, much greater, much better than 40 years of manna. Which, by the way, were the Israelites happy with their 40 years of manna? No. <laughs> they, they, what these people say that they want, they would be really happy about, uh, their fathers were not happy about, all right? Look at verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As is written, he gave them bread from heaven. We want to verse 32. Through 34, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Now this sounds, again, man, they've called him the prophet, they've called him the king, they've called him rabbi. They've come all this way, the desolate land, and now across the water to Capernaum to seek him. Verse 34, wow, sir, give us this bread always. I mean, this is a great time for an altar call, right? And it's like, he's got them right where he wants them, uh, but he knows what they don't know, that they're not true believers. They've come to him for the wrong reasons. Sir, give us this bread always. This is almost exactly like the Samaritan woman, just a couple of chapters earlier, at the well, Jesus says, I am the fountain, right, the, of life. And you drink of the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. And she says, sir, give me this water, right? She wants this temporary gain of this eternal water. Well, she'll never thirst again, but she misses the point. But eventually she gets there, and she goes to the whole town saying, come see, come see. This is Jesus, right? This is the Messiah. And they want to hear him, and he teaches them. And, and, and they, they believe. Uh, here, these people... Do not reach that point. They're still looking at this. Even Stephen, they just want bread. They literally want bread. They eternal life. Hey, forget that. I'm hungry. I want my belly full. Uh, what is the difference between the woman who ended up believing in Jesus? Well, she truly believed. Told the entire village. Pleaded with them to come hear him, right? Uh, what will be the response of this crowd who have seen so many signs and just eaten of the miraculous meal? Look at verse 35 and 36. Jesus exposes them fully again. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So here we see this type, again, in Old Testament manna, fulfilled, not parallel over here, not just, just more bread, 
the I am the bread of life, eat of me for eternal life, right? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. This is another uh, dominant I am statement, the way it's worded here. He is drawing on the fact that he is God. He is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So Jesus lets them know fully. Even though they've called him the king, they've called him the prophet. Even though they've called him the rabbi, even though from the outside looking in, these are Jesus' number one fans. He exposes them, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the one who God the Father has sealed, exposes them right there on the spot and says, you do not believe. Wow. We must keep this in mind today. As many people profess to follow Christ, yet it is a Christ of their own making, a Christ that they can control. So there's a lot there. We'll probably recap a little bit on verse 35 and 36 our next time together. But just acknowledging the fact that just because people are seeking Jesus, as these people did, following Jesus as they did, give him nice accolades and titles, it does not equal true belief. Why do you come to Jesus? Do you come to him for salvation? Are you looking at yourself for what you can do to earn it? You can't do it, right? And Jesus knows the heart. Many people, all these people, however many thousands that come across, as we're going to find out in a couple of weeks here, they all left. Like virtually 100% of them left. Even though they looked like believers, they were not. Jesus knows the heart, and he exposes them for who they truly are. Let's pray. God, help us to see this passage today. Help us to understand that many people who profess to, to be fans of Jesus, great believers in Jesus, who claim to seek after him and follow him, may not be so. And God, I pray that there would be no false convert among us, even today. For those who are listening or those who are present, Lord, I pray that if, they, if this is them, that they would see themselves clearly, that they don't need a to-do list because there's nothing they can do. There's not a list of making yourself righteous in order to get to heaven, but you have sent and you have sealed the one, the bread of life, the one who brings eternal life, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would look to him more and more. Help us look to him fully. Help us to be satisfied, fully satiated in the salvation that Jesus has brought. Help us to see ourselves for who we truly are as those incapable of saving ourselves or even doing anything to earn forgiveness of one single sin, and help us to see Jesus for who he truly is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the perfect one who dies for our sins so that we can have his record, so that we can have eternal life. And God, we thank you as we study today that we have been sealed as well. What a beautiful blessing that not only have we been saved by your mercy and by your grace, but we are kept the same way, by your mercy and by your grace. We did not earn salvation, and we do not earn our keep. We do not have to earn that salvation for it to continue. That The one who has regenerated us is also the one who guarantees our salvation. And we thank you that, and help us, God, to be reminded of that and live in that. And thank you for that assurance of salvation that you have given us.